ethnic and national borders are much more recent than many of the cultural practices are. And under the empires, a lot of those people lived much more mixed together than they do now. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Life podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. It all started with a silly idea of creating some cute ballad and gifts, but grew up into a full fashion and lifestyle brand, which is called My Inner Dancer, an online store for passionate dancers. Things change, things evolve, but our premise remains the same. Inspired by ballet dance, created for life. Check it out at myinnerdancer.com and reveal your inner dancer to the world. What's up, guys? How are you doing? Welcome back to the Ballet Dance Life podcast. A new episode and new very exciting topic. I decided to go uh, these days a little bit beyond our typical uh, ballet dance areas of focus, either it is oriental or folklore, but to uh, feature some topics that are very closely related, but typically not uh, the center of our attention in ballet dance community. And specifically, today we're gonna talk about Balkan region and music and dance of Balkans and how it is connected to what we call today ballet dance and in general the history and culture of uh, Middle East and Central Asia and how all those regions were interconnected and had cultural exchange throughout years and centuries. And I'm absolutely excited to introduce our guest of today's episode, Alex Markovich, who holds a PhD in anthropology from University of Illinois, Chicago. He's a general research interest involve music, dance and ritual in the Balkans, ethnic identity and nationalism and anthropology of performance and ethnomusicology. Currently he is a co-instructor and performer with the Greek dance group Elas and a guest instructor with Ortheus Hellenic Folklore Society of Chicago. He also offers public dance workshops and presentations on his research in dance and anthropology. He recently contributed a fascinating article to EFC's forum Folkloristica, which is called Beat the Drum, exploring the politics and performance among Roma brass musicians in Vranje, Serbia. We actually talked about so many interesting stories related to dance and music uh, in Balkan region and how it is connected to Ottoman Empire, which obviously influenced uh, to a certain extent uh, later Baladins too. And uh, one of the central focus of our topic was of course a Romani culture across uh, the whole uh, region. Alex has also kindly provided a bunch of video examples of dance styles and music style that he was talking about. So don't forget to check the show notes. I put a separate page with a collection of those videos that are all available on YouTube and they're collected 
or in one place for you to see a visual demonstration of what we talked about so don't forget to go and check out uh, show notes uh, not only for those videos but also to see how you can connect with Alex and uh, get uh, more information about his work and his research. I'm really excited to dive into this uh, topic today. I hope all of you stay uh, safe and healthy in this uh, challenging, uncertain times that we are going through these days. But don't forget that they will be over and everything will go back to normal, even if that normal will be different at this point for us. But uh, uh, happy times will come very, very soon and stay optimistic, stay curious and uh, listen to the podcast because that's a great source to indulge your curiosity, <laughs> that's for sure. On this note, let's dive into the interview. Hello, Alexander. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. And I'm very excited to highlight uh, uh, for our listeners a uh, very interesting and unusual topic. So thank you for coming and uh, sharing uh, your time with us today. <laughs> Uh, it's really my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm. I would love to start our conversation from the like very beginning. If you can give a little bit, um, like to go back in time a little bit, and if you can tell our listeners how you got interested in general in researching uh, dance and music of Balkan region. Oh yeah. Well, so I'm I'm Serbian by heritage. My um, mother was born in the States in Chicago to parents, Serbian parents who came after World War II as refugees from northern Bosnia. And my dad was born and raised in Serbia, which was then part of Yugoslavia. And in the 1960s, he emigrated to the United States. So, you know, I was born in Chicago, which is the largest Serbian population anywhere outside of Belgrade in terms of concentration in one um, place on the planet. Um, and so there's a pretty vibrant community and I grew up in that community. I think I was around seven years old when my parents decided, uh, you should probably try out some dance steps in the, the local community youth dance group. Um, and at first I kind of didn't want to and protested a little bit, but my sister was old enough, my younger sister, so there were no excuses anymore. And within the first two weeks, I had totally fallen in love with it. The idea of being able to move uh, in coordination with all these other people uh, to music just kind of clicked with me and, and it never sort of left. I've, you know, so I've been a fan of folk music and folk dance uh, for quite some time. I started out in the Serbian community like that. And then when I was in about 15 years old, I had, we had had long-term Greek family friends. And the daughter was also in a Greek dance group, a particular kind of Greek dance, uh, Black Sea Greek dances. So Greeks from northeastern Turkey that eventually resettled in um, northern Greece in the early 1900s. And she said, we don't have a lot of guys in our dance group. I know you dance Serbian. I don't think this would be that different for you. Would you like to try it? And, you know, my curiosity was raised. And I said, OK. Um, so I spent a few years dancing Pontic Greek dances, then branched out into other Greek dance. So, you know, through my teen years, I was really developing kind of a broader perspective on Balkan folk dance that went beyond just Serbian. 
And in the meantime, I had been interested in culture and, and uh, things like that also since I was a child. So through high school, I was starting to realize, wait a minute, I think I want to major in anthropology. I want to be a cultural anthropologist. I ended up going into that in, in college. So I finished my undergrad and then later a master's and a PhD in cultural anthropology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, so the two things kind of blended in that way, right? I wanted to be a researcher as an academic professional, but um, the music and dance of the Balkans was so close to my heart that, uh, you know, I even ended up doing a research project for my PhD about uh, Romani, a.k.a. Uh, Gypsy, as we call them in English often, um, Balkan brass band music from southern Serbia and um, so these things have stayed connected for me, both the research portion as an academic and the, you know, personal interest in music and dance of this wider area. Mm. Uh, for someone who uh, may be really not familiar with this topic, uh, like really mm -hmm. far from everything, and uh, I would love to start really big, like trying to, to narrow this topic, but... Uh, like everyone kind of knows and heard the um, term Balkan region, but can mm -hmm. you a little bit specify, like to give a like, more precise, like what we actually uh, mean by calling like Balkan region, where geographically sure. today it will be located? Sure. Well, like many things having to do with the Balkans, it's actually quite complicated and it, it's going to depend on who you ask and uh, what kind of interests they have. Uh, you know, if we went by a strict geographical uh, idea, usually what people mean is the Balkan Peninsula. So this kind of triangle that's bordered on the west by the Adriatic Sea, on the south by the Aegean Sea, and on the uh, east side, uh, at least minimally, by the Black Sea, right? So it would include, pro you know, probably most people would agree, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, um, Albania, today's North Macedonia, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, uh, Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo, um, Bosnia, and probably Croatia minimally. But uh, again, the issue is that it's often not just geography, it's also politics and cultural history. So um, one unfortunate dimension of the way the Balkans has been used as a concept has also been as the sort of like backwater or primitive area of Europe proper, right? The comparison against the sort of developed modern Western Europe, right? And that goes back to different historical legacies, right? That the Balkans were once under Ottoman Turkish control for several centuries, and the West very much saw this as a sort of step backwards for the area, you know, the um, stifling control of Islamic culture as opposed to some kind of modernizing Western Christian quote-unquote culture that developed in the West under the Austro-Hungarians and others. So many places in the Balkans kind of bought into that narrative in the 1800s when they were becoming independent countries, again, after Ottoman rule. And so there's always this jostling about countries trying to set themselves up as more central or Western as opposed to Eastern looking uh, because of that history. So, for example, Slovenia and Croatia, which were both parts of the former Yugoslavia, had a very much a habit of defining the other former republics of Yugoslavia, which were to the south and east, as more backward because they were much more Balkan because they had once been under the Ottoman Turks, whereas, you know, Croatia... Slovenia always looked to uh, 
um, more of their like Habsburg, Austro-Hungarian, Western-oriented um, history and past. So many Croatians would not agree, for example, if you said you are also part of the Balkans, right? Technically, according to a geographical, because they see it as a cultural and a historical thing instead. I think sometimes Romanians have issues with that as well. And then you have the other issue, right, that so many people would think that in terms of that shared history and culture, in a lot of ways, cultural influence because of that Ottoman um, history, that Turkey actually should be considered, at least parts of Turkey, essentially part of a larger Balkan region, right? There's still so much connection and um, interconnection that goes on. Um, but, you know, people who are purists about the geography would say the actual part of sort of Turkey that is not within the landmass that's cut off by the Aegean and Black Sea technically doesn't fit in the Balkans. So it really depends on who you're asking. Me personally, I feel like it has the historical and cultural aspects are much more important than some kind of arbitrary lines being drawn around, you know, water and land masses, um, so, but it's good to know this kind of background too, because you'll, this is why you'll get very different answers from different people, depending on where they're from and what kind of, how they want to set themselves up in terms of the world order that they live in, basically. Mm, that's great. Thank you so much for explanation, sure. detailed explanation. And something you also briefly touched about, uh, influence of uh, Ottoman Empire and in general uh, even the term you use term uh, dances of the Black Sea in Greece mm -hmm. and I'm more familiar like dances of the Black Sea but from Turkey side so can right. you a little bit more expand on historical connections between um, I would say in general uh, Middle East because although it's also uh Different people will put different regions in the term sure. Middle East too. But in general, right. let's like um, get overview like what uh, mm -hmm. most of the people will consider as Middle East or historically like also some part of the Middle East as Ottoman Empire. What were the historical right. connections between Balkan region and Middle Eastern region in those right. senses and how it also influenced uh, dance and music? Sure. Yeah, I think that pe most people would point to the Ottoman Empire as being one of the strongest connections, right? It was a very long period of time and in some ways ended only very recently. You know, I mean, some of the some of the last regions in the Balkans to still be technically under Ottoman control did not end that relationship until 1912. We're talking only about 100 years ago that several generations of human beings living and dying. You know, some people have great grandparents potentially who could have still been born under Ottoman rule. And so much has changed in the Balkans since then too. But it's not that far of a stretch for many people to sort of see that. And, and you know, depending on which part of the Balkans you're looking at, you're talking about it four to five hundred years of Ottoman presence as, as a ruling entity, but also in terms of, um, you know, economic practices and cultural exchanges, you know, that were sort of layered for centuries and centuries and centuries in this area. I mean, at, at, under Ottoman control, internal borders that exist today don't didn't exist right so people moved uh with much greater frequency um even if the pace of travel was different back then you know so you have you had this really ripe situation for a lot of you know large movements of goods people ideas 
across the whole area. And as you point out, right, so the, that meant that the Balkans technically fell under a larger political, social entity that also had it had control of vast parts of the Near East, of North Africa, um, and had its own exchanges even with, if you look further east, Iran and places beyond that through trade and through movements of people, even if there wasn't actual Ottoman control of those places at times. So you can, I mean, you see legacies all over the place, right? And many Balkan peoples are familiar with their own cultures, so they take for granted that those are elements that are just theirs, right? But in the reality is that you know, in cuisine, in language, borrowed words, right, in borrowed food items, in borrowed, you know, folk clothing styles, especially in the urban places that were really connected to Ottoman rule, um, you see so many parallels of so many types um, that I think would go quite far. So, I mean, I could think of very random examples that uh, that absolutely illustrate that. Um, the silk sash that men used to wear in large towns in southern Serbia and Kosovo and Macedonia and further south, even in Albania. And in South Serbia, they call trabolos. Trabolos. It's an older word that you wouldn't hear people use it anymore because people don't use the belt anymore. Uh, but trabolos comes from the Turkish word tirebulu, which is their word for Tripoli, today's Tripoli in northern Libya, or uh, yes, in Libya, um, because this is where the material, the silk for these sashes was made, right? So under the Ottoman Empire, you could have a silk sash pr produced in Libya become the, way, the kind of hot item for urban men's attire throughout um, city folk um, populations all over the empire. So someone in Serbia is wearing a belt that, you know, has origins in Libya, right? Uh, the Black Sea Greeks, the Pontic Greeks, right, still also use names for clothing items, a particular kind of apron, woven apron that many women used to wear that they call Lahore, Lahore coming from the city of Lahore in today's Pakistan, right? Because that material, that fabric was produced in Pakistan and, you know, took the trade routes uh, west into Turkey and from there was distributed to to urban centers, right? And that's one example. You know, Serbian speakers can point to uh, hundreds of words in the Serbian language even today that have quote-unquote Turkish origins. But if you dig at that Turkish, they're also loan words from Arabic or from Persian, right? Because of the connections that the Ottoman Turks had with those areas, right? So it's a really deeply ingrained set of, you know, mixtures, actually, that each place has kind of crafted into their own thing, their own take, their own variant. Um, and, uh, you know, just it's a question of whether people are even aware of the fact that these other practices or, or words or cuisines or things like that exist in other places. And a lot of times when people from the Balkans encounter that, they're, they're pretty surprised to see like, oh, my goodness, that looks really familiar. Or that tastes really familiar. Um, but it really is this legacy of this longer historical uh, trajectory. And I, I base this on the Ottomans because it's the most recent. But we have to remember that before the Ottomans, the Byzantines had, you know, the Byzantine Roman Empire, which was in the same general area, had connections to the Near East, to North Africa as well, you know, possessions, territorial possessions or trade routes. So a lot of this stuff probably goes back even earlier than that, right? It's interesting how today we talk about, like even a couple centuries ago, about like a tradition, traditions, and we talk about either learning traditions or preserving traditions. But if we mm -hmm. dig uh, back uh, in those times, uh, actually, so much things that we call today traditions were borrowed from in between cultures. Right. So right. all traditions is basically a product of some kind of interaction in between borders and in between cultures. 
Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, we we use the idea of tradition now. A lot of that comes out of, again, the 1800s, 1800s in Europe when people were trying to create national folk cultures. And so you had this discipline of folklore come about. Let's record what people are saying, singing, dancing, thinking, wearing, eating. And then that sort of almost creates this um, little box that they try to preserve these things in as if this is the way, right? But the irony is that the things that were being recorded by folklorists in the 17 or 1800s might have been 20 years old or 50 years old in terms of the community practice. They didn't need to be old or unchanging. Culture is always actually changing, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, depending on the circumstances. And that's true of, you know, folk traditions even today, right? So many of these things that are the result of borrowing and mixing and moving, um, you know, they might be 100 years old at this point, but that doesn't mean that they're exactly the same as they were 100 years ago, right? Or that they're going to have to stay the same in order to still be an important part of people's cultural identity and practices. That stuff is always being tweaked and changed, depending on what people want in a given moment, what the community accepts or doesn't accept, what it's being used for. You know, same goes for music and dance, as we see all the time. You sort of get a spirit or an ethos of a longer-term practice or tradition, even if some of the surface-level details, styling, you know, whatever, change a little bit. And, and personally, I don't see that as like um, – you know, a, a breaking down of tradition. Maybe it's better to think of tradition as something that isn't static or stable, but has to be living and kind of organic and moving in order to stay kind of relevant in people's practices. So that's a long, long-term process too that's been happening for quite some time from well before we usually now in the quote-unquote modern era tend to imagine that those things were happening. People were moving, goods were moving, practices were popular and falling out of favor all the time back then too. People were people back then just like people are people now. Hmm. And how about uh, music and dance? Even if you like maybe narrow, because I know it's a huge sure. topic and general question, but uh, for instance, we already mentioned the dances of the Black Sea. So how, for instance, if you know any connections or similarities or differences even between what you uh, use term, for instance, Bla dances of the Black Sea in Greece and dances of the Black Sea in Turkey? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting about the way that stuff tends to work uh, from my experience in the Balkans is, you know, the kind of ethnic and national borders are much more recent than many of the cultural practices are. And under the empires, a lot of those people live much more mixed together than they do now. Right. When the nation states are being created, the idea was it's one territory under one government for only one people, more or less, usually some dominant group. Um, but when those people lived mixed together, they didn't actually see those practices necessarily as needing to be a marker of this group of people as different from this group of people. Oftentimes they shared very, very similar, if not identical practices. So, you know, if we take the case of the, the Greek population that lived for quite a long, you know, thousands of years in the northeastern corner of what is today Turkey on the Black Sea coast. You know, they lived alongside people who were Armenians, who were Turkish speakers, who were Georgian speakers from the neighboring Caucasus area, um, et cetera, et cetera. And many of those groups had their own little takes on a kind of musical style and dance style that really would probably call more a regional thing than an ethnic thing. So you look at Turkish Black Sea dancing and Greek Black Sea dancing today, 
the the only reason there's different uh, difference is that in the early 1900s after Greece and Turkey had a war to try and carve out the remaining territory of the Ottoman Empire which would what would still belong to Turkey versus to Greece um, the end result of that war was a was a treaty that agreed to a quote unquote exchange of populations so something like a one and a half million people who were labeled more or less Greek um, because they were Orthodox Christians, religion was being used as the marker, were sent from what were today's Turkish territories to Greece proper. And something like 350 to 500,000 people who were labeled Turks by the Greek government because of their Islamic faith as Muslims, were sent from Greek territories to Turkey, to today's Turkey. But the people took local culture, essentially, which was the only culture they knew, with them. And now you have people who are being told you are Greek, even if potentially they spoke Turkish and didn't speak Greek, or they spoke an older dialect of Greek that even you know local Greeks in Greece couldn't understand. Uh, they had to kind of embrace a new identity, but they get to this country where essentially you're almost like a foreigner in this place. I don't know the local culture that well. I, my food is different. My clothing is different. My cultural practices are different. So the irony is that these Greeks that left the Black Sea area preser have preserved for several generations now uh, the regional culture of the Black Sea area as a very distinct thing from the rest of the Greeks are they are Greeks, but they are not the same as other Greeks, right? There's some of them still refer to themselves almost as refugees, even four or five generations later, even if they're settled in Greece. Their music and dance looks super similar to the music and dance of Turks from the Black Sea area. They, they play the same three-stringed fiddle that the Greeks call lira or kemenche, which the Turks also call kemenche. Um, some of the other instruments, tulum, the bagpipe, it's the same word in Turkish um, uh, that you know people in the Black Sea area play. The difference being that the lyrics of the songs might be in Greek with a lot of Turkish loan words. Uh, there are some specific dances that the Greeks still do, uh, which we're not sure if the local Turks also did at one point in time, but which... The Greeks, because they were transplanted to Greece, preserved because it's the only thing they had left, really. So they didn't really want to change the tradition very much. They hung on to it in a way that means that they're doing things from 100 and 150 years ago in that area, whereas the Turks who stayed in the Black Sea area probably didn't feel like they needed to keep it as sort of set in stone as the Greek community did. So I can see that there have been changes in the like dance styling and the speed of the music in which kind of dance tunes stayed and which essentially were forgotten or maybe left with the Greeks and were never used by the Turks afterwards for various reasons. So you see a little bit of change happening between the Greek and Turkish populations, but it's really a result of being separated now in time and space. And because the Turkish state government, for example, has, you know, folk dance groups that are dedicated to Black Sea stuff. And so the teachers kind of create a more elaborate stage styling. You know, all of these things start to happen to make differences between the two communities. Whereas, you know, if you went back 100 years, they might have been able, they probably were dancing in the same dance lines, right, in, in mixed communities or something without any significant difference. And it's kind of touching to see that, you know, Black Sea Greeks, for example, have gone back to the area in the, in the 90s and 2000s 
pilgrimages were becoming a big thing. Go back and see the old homeland, try to find your grandparents' house or great-grandparents' house or whatever. And they would meet local people in these places who could still remember their parents or grandparents telling them about the Greeks who left, right? And if they play music together or if they dance together, there's much more similarity than difference. People are very moved by it because they can get in the same dance line and dance together uh, even if sort of nationalism and other things have told them that they shouldn't have this connection. So much so that I've seen videos, beautiful videos of, you know, a Greek musician sitting down playing the instrument, playing a tune, singing in Greek. And when he takes a pause, the Turks join in with Turkish lyrics to the exact same song, right? So the melody is the same, just the lyrics are different. It shows how sort of deeply connected. So I'm really a firm believer of you see it over and over again in practice. You, really, you have to look at more regional cultures than you have to look at ethnic or national ones. Sure, there are sometimes differences there that are pretty stark, but you know the the recent borders are much more recent than the actual cultural practices um, have been for such a long time in that area. So it's much harder to say, oh, this is only a Greek or a Turkish or Serbian or Bosnian or whatever thing than, than this is a sort of regional dance or regional style of music that different communities might use slightly differently, but which is often shared in common. Wow, that's so fascinating. Like I, many things that you mentioned, I had no idea, but now like it's kind of like explain some questions or uh, question mm. marks that uh, we as a dancers may have seen just by observing different things. Although we, I mean, sure. we as our ballet dance community of listeners, <laughs> uh, maybe not that much familiar with Balkan region, but um, yeah, it's very interesting. And it's another proof how powerful is dance and music and culture in general. And hopefully the yeah. art can at some point uh, con connect us beyond borders and just remind people that uh, uh, there are a lot of things done artificially to sort of spread and put uh, right. aside from each other and those connections between Balkan and Pakistani. I even just right now remember just briefly like one example. I recently was in Western Ukraine looking at some uh, very ethnical museums and mm -hmm. actually one was sort of gallery slash store, but they had a collection of very old traditional like made in villages uh, shorts. And I look at one like it was sort of, it was not even a shirt, it was sort of jacket that you put mm -hmm. over the shirt. And I was like, but that looks Pakistani because as yeah, a belly dancer yeah. and living along many years in Toronto, I worked a lot with Pakistani communities. So sure. at their weddings, sure. I saw a lot of those traditional costumes and dresses. I was like, but that doesn't look Ukrainian. And then the curator mm -hmm. of exhibit is like, no, this is from Ukrainian village. Done. And she's like, another example, she said, a month ago, there was another lady coming. Uh, she was a tourist. She came from Indonesia. And she's like, she's coming in a skirt, traditional Indonesian. It's a modern, but with an ethnic Indonesian sure. motifs and she's like the skirt to me looks as if she just bought it in our store which is wow. traditional Ukrainian so it's so interesting right. to see those uh, actual connecting points in our culture and art and uh, you just gave uh, sure. uh, another example of okay people were moved uh, forced to move to different countries but they still preserve the art and music and sure. dance that actually can connect to countries that sure. now like there is a lot of nationalistic tension possibly somewhere. right right I also know that one of your uh, focuses and your interest is Romani culture specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, can you please tell historically what a part Romani culture plays in Balkan uh, region? Sure. 
Um, well, yeah, it's a it's a it's an important question. They, you know, a lot of the local communities, just like in the rest of Europe, um, often tend to downplay the Romani community and the Romani presence in the area. Right there, there's a lot of historical. Um, and ongoing political, economic, social discrimination against Romani communities, it's very easy for the local majority populations to dismiss them as, you know, gypsies with all the kind of pejorative or negative stereotypes that go along with that, people who are nomadic, who don't have much of their own culture, who um, are not trustworthy, right, who are, you know, liars or thieves or beggars or whatever the case might be. Um as a way of like not of distancing themselves from these communities. But the reality is that in the Balkans, as in almost any other place that Romani uh, groups um, live, there's a lot that the communities contribute to those local societies. And there's a long history of interconnectedness. Right. So in the Balkans, we you know, the, the whole story with Roma, as far as we can tell from looking at, you know, histories and looking at the language and kind of deconstructing the language back to some uh, early version potentially linguists have shown you know it's pretty clear that Roma as a group kind of have their origins in several communities in northern India sometime between 900 and 1000 or 1100 AD um, there there seems to have been some event that got those communities to move many scholars believe it was some kind of a military invasion a lost war that these communities were kind of part of a military uh, support group essentially, and then when that war was lost, uh, that these support groups either fled or were taken as slaves by other groups and started to move uh, west. Um, so they passed through Iran. They they hit the sort of middle and near east, and then uh, they were arriving in what was then the Byzantine Empire. So once the Ottoman Turks started to expand as well. We have some evidence that in the Balkans, Romani groups were appearing either just before or just along with the Ottoman expansion into the Balkans. So we're looking at, you know, the 1200s, 1300s AD um, and pretty rapidly thereafter. Right. You know, by the 14-1500s, Roma are in most parts of Central Europe and Western Europe and already pretty established in the Balkans. Um, so and their communities were often distrusted in those areas because they were originally seen as being very different by local peoples, probably a different language, different uh, cultural practices, clothing. Um, in some cases, they looked physically different. You know, some have had a darker tone of skin and stuff. These things are written down in historical accounts. So they get a bad rap from the beginning by governments that were a little bit distrustful of these kind of groups of people that had appeared from somewhere else. Uh, but even then, we have accounts that Roma were always contributing certain kinds of services uh, to local communities that others didn't do. So they were renowned as blacksmiths, as rope makers, basket makers, horse traders and breeders. Um, so they had skilled crafts, actually, that they were often selling. Um, entertainment was long something that, I mean, even under the Byzantines, we have records that these groups of people that were being referred to by the name that was used for Roma at that time in the Byzantine Empire were, you know, jugglers, clowns, dancers, musicians, you know, they would go around from town to town uh, performing or they would be hired by local places as their sort of resident musicians and artists uh, for entertainment purposes. 
And then when you get into the Ottoman period, especially, we know that the Ottomans, for example, used many of those special skills of Roma for their military as a, a military support group. Because Roma did things like, you know, cast the iron to make um, weapons like cannons for the for the Ottomans. Right? They dug trenches. They transported cannons. They were um, gunpowder makers. Many Roma groups have sort of subgroup names that still tell us uh, legacies of that kind of. So you know, if we have a Romani group subgroup in Macedonia that call themselves Baruti, the Barut makers, and Barut is the word for gunpowder. Right? So that legacy has remained. Uh, and, and even after the Ottomans, so all the way into modern times, Roma have continued to perform many of these services, particularly they're well known as musicians um, for many communities. Um, so you have this ironic situation where for a variety of historical and other reasons, there's a lot of majority distrust of the community, right? They tend to not want to live next to Roma or intermarry with Roma or have their kids go to school with Roma. Uh, so the community remains kind of isolated in a lot of ways. Yet, uh, non-Roma are constantly going to Roma for certain kinds of services and expertise that actually the majority community doesn't have. So, you know, my particular interest was especially with music and dance. And, you know, time and again, you see in the Balkans that professional Romani musicians have such a wide repertoire of knowledge about the local uh, music scene, broader, much broader musical um, connections across a wider area too than even just the locals. Uh, and that music knowledge is transmitted within families who teach, you know, their sons and grandsons how to play particular instruments. So you have the situation in the Balkans that, for example, um, certain whole uh, instrumental ensembles are categorized as quote-unquote gypsy or Romani because they were almost always only in the hands of Romani players. One of the most important ones in the Southern Balkans is um, the Zurna, Zurla. Uh, it's like a wooden double-reed sham, very piercing, loud sound, often played in pairs that comes out of the Ottoman legacy, paired with at least one or two big drums, like marching band drums called Dawul, Tupan, uh, Dawuli, depending on what part of the Balkans you're in. I mean, that those two instruments paired together were almost always only played by Roma. But everybody wanted them for their celebrations, right? Before you had, um, you know, amplification technology, if you wanted to do a wedding out on the street where, you know, 100 guests could hear the music, you needed these really, really loud instruments. And so you have this situation where if you're a Macedonian, if you're a Turk, if you're an Albanian, you know, if you're Serbian, depending on where you were in the Balkans, and you wanted that instrumental ensemble, you had to go only to the Romani community to hire the professional Roma there. And then they knew the music of your particular community almost better than many of the community members did, right? Because the community members don't need to know how to do this on a daily basis or exactly correctly. They don't need to know the the deeper context of the music or exactly how to play it for particular people, you know, what the drum pattern should look like when you shift from this melody to that melody, which melody you have to play only when the boy who's being circumcised is paraded down the street versus the melody you play when you put henna on the hair of the bride versus the melody. I mean, they knew all of these things, which were part of the larger cultures around them, almost with a, a much greater intimacy than many locals did right so they relied on roma really to make their community celebrations their rituals to to produce the music that they could dance to to get the things they needed right in those contexts 
to a much greater extent than I think a lot of those majority communities regularly acknowledge, right? They love the Roma as musicians um, in a general sense, but I, I'm, I don't think that everyone has the awareness of the degree to which they rely on these uh, Romani communities to preserve certain knowledge and expertise that is really necessary in their societies. Mm, that's such an interesting uh, example of uh, like practically how the integration of different cultures goes to each other. Uh, because uh, like as far as I know, like Romani culture, it kind of stretches throughout the whole world almost, but mm-hmm. it it is different in different countries. Like for exactly. Turkish Romani right. is different from Balkan Romani. And we kind of right. always uh, talk about that it's the same culture, but whenever it settles in a certain region, it gets the traditions of local like culture, and mm-hmm. then it changes. Mm-hmm. That's why Turkish Romani uh, culture is different from Balkan Romani or different from Russian right. Romani. And now you right. gave a perfect example, like of actually how practically it is. It just uh, right. uh, naturally happens, not even by uh, like borrowing traditions, but by practically performing their like uh, um, expertise skills delivering to the community but by the right. also having uh, this natural need to uh, know and discover the local community that of course will with time influence and change your own community like culture too sure. I'm right. not much like uh, I'm not an expert in this question so I don't know exactly the historical movement of Romani culture but as far mm-hmm. as I know it kind of um went into several different branches one went to right. more middle east and north africa another to europe uh, but you just mentioned that uh it was noticed that balkan romani uh culture appeared in balkan region romani culture appeared in balkan region mm-hmm. approximately at the same time of ottoman influence so right. does it tell us anything about like how exactly is there any like direct connection even more direct not just saying that it's for the same culture but more direct connection between rom turkish romani uh, people and balkan romani people or is it balkan rom balkan romani culture is more closely maybe to russian balk i'm yeah, I'm not much familiar, so I'm just guessing. Sure, sure. But to to get some direction of uh... well, I I think the really important thing to to it goes back almost to this regional thing that I talked about with the larger communities to the non-Romani communities. I think it's very true of Roma too. So the thing about Roma is that there really is no one Romani culture, right? I mean, perhaps there was at the very very beginnings of this community, um, but but very quickly, right? These groups were being dispersed and joining. Joining, you know, new communities or new areas that they ended up, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years now, right? So, I mean, there are there are threads of some things that people would say, okay, we can see the commonality. Most groups that call themselves Roma, for example, speak some version of uh, Romani language that can be somewhat intelligible, mutually intelligible between groups, but often even that's quite a stretch, right? Um, and then, you know, there are some groups that speak very different languages and definitely they vary quite a bit culturally. So, you know, you almost you really have to be specific to each particular Romani community to understand how their culture ticks, because it does not mean that, you know, Roma from some other area, sometimes not even that far away, would be able to identify at all with that local Romani culture, language, music, dance, whatever 
the case might be. So, I mean, saying Balkan Roma even is actually way too broad of a, you know, there are Roma in the Balkans that, uh, you know, dance and perform music that everyone would recognize much more like uh, Hungarian, uh, right, or, or Croatian or Slovenian, much more sort of quote-unquote Central European sounding, right, with much more minimal uh, influences from, you know, some kind of Ottoman tradition, even if the older history of those communities is that everybody came up through the Ottoman Empire, right? It's just that when they ended up in places that where the Ottomans weren't anymore or never came, that changed quite a bit. They, they adapted again. Um, so, you know, the two things that are really important there are that sort of the need that Roma always had to be able to find some kind of work, right? They were often not allowed to do the kind of things that the majority communities were. They were forbidden to do more standard economic practices, right? Like, I don't know, banking or trade or whatever the case might have been, right? So they, these were the jobs that they were taking because others didn't want to do that, right? No one wanted to be a musician for pay where people are kind of bossing you around and blah, blah, blah. And Roma became very good at it because it became the best niche for them to have, right? So you're going to be practical as a professional and adapt to local culture in a lot of ways because this is how you earn your bread and butter. Uh, but at the same time, that actually also means that Roma, because they had these longer um distance connections to communities through some kind of historical travel or let's say through marriage if they were settled many romani communities are actually settled right they're not nomadic they live in houses they live in neighborhoods but they still give and take grooms and brides across wider spaces they would be exposed to music and practices from other places that they could also then bring into their local community as a novelty, as something new to sell to the communities in place. So they were also contributing to slight cultural change and transmission. They were producing the local culture as much as they were adapting to it, right? It was a give and take, not just that Roma only took what locals did and just played it back for them. So when you look at the connections of like music and dance across Romani Balkan, if you if we look at the Turkish situation, Turkish Roma, there are a lot of similarities actually between Turkish Roma in Turkey and like Roma who are Muslim identified, um, who are living in places that used to be under the Ottomans or were under the Ottomans until much more recently. So in Bulgaria and in Macedonia and Albania and in, in Greece, um, many of the kinds of instruments that are played, the musical styles that are played, that are preferred, the dance styles have very clear connections to Ottoman culture and to this day would look very similar to some of the stuff that's being done in, by Turkish Roma. Uh, but that line between the Ottoman influence and Central European influence makes those kind of similarities go away very quickly. So, you know, there are already parts of northern Serbia and Bosnia and definitely Croatia where local Romani peoples would not feel any kind of enjoy uh, enjoyment or pleasure or even ability to connect with the musical sound aesthetics dance practices of roma in turkey much less even just roma who are further south so i mean i did research in serbia yeah roma who live around belgrade or north of belgrade for example would see as a whole different world the romani culture that i knew very well uh, in the community that I lived in for a year in, in southern Serbia, in Vranja, which is much more oriented towards um, the Ottoman legacies, right? And so here I'm talking about things like, you know, northern Serbian Roma would not 
connect very well with the odd meters, the odd rhythms that are very typical of Turkish influence music. So the nine eight or the seven eight rhythms, right? The uh, one two three one two one two. That's a seven or the nines. So one two one two one two one two three one two one two one two one two three. They don't make sense, right? Because those communities use much more even rhythms that are much more familiar to Western ears, right? Whereas in the South, everybody loves those rhythms, right? That stretch, that little bit of a different dynamic. Um, and, and, you know, it goes past that even. So I, I know of researchers who did work with Romani musicians in Macedonia, for example, in the 80s, who were still talking about the fact that their parents, grandparents, as musicians, were buying records that came out of Turkey, even though the Ottoman Turks were no longer in control of the area, that preference for a certain aesthetic and a certain sound, which in the 50s and 60s was still only 30, 40 years away in the past, right, since the Macedonia was quote-unquote liberated in 1912, these communities stayed tuned in to even actual current contemporary Turkish musical practices because they connected with them very well. And they and they had clients, Macedonian Turks, Macedonian Albanians, who also still wanted those sounds. So, you know, Southern Balkan communities in Greece and Macedonia and Southern Serbia and Kosovo in Bulgaria would still be very, very much more similar to Turkish Roma than the other way around. And it just has to do with that kind of like much more recent cultural and historical connection. And then even then, though, I have to say that there are differences in terms of the specific communities. So the South Serbian Roma that I know in Southern Serbia do some things, but don't do other things that you would still see among Macedonian Roma, for example. So there are almost these shades of more similarity or difference from Turkish Roma. Each particular community has its own sort of take um, which repertoire survived, what things they prefer now, what, how their sound, musical sound changes, how their dance practices look a little differently still. Um, so even if we have that larger historical his, you know, trajectory there, we still have to understand that sometimes it's so specific that you can go from one town to another that's only maybe an hour's car ride away or less and see a very significant difference between those local Romani communities' particular styles. I don't want to talk about it too much, but I can give one example that blew my mind when I was doing research. So I was in the town of Vranje, and there's a town 20 minutes car ride south in Bujanovac in Serbia two Romani communities that both live in those different towns. The only difference is that in Vranje you have mostly Serbs and some Roma, and in Bujanovac you have 50% Albanians, 50% Serbs, and some Roma. So Roma play for both communities. A, a, a Romani kid in Vranje told me, the mostly Serbian town, that if they go to play in Bujanovac for a Romani wedding, they have to play the rhythm in a way that is much more what he called Albanian because the local Romani community prefers that to the busier sound with much more in between syncopation and you know slight taps and beats that the, the Vranje Roma really like. So these are two Romani communities that are very similar, but he says that as a musician, you could still get a beating potentially from an angry Romani patron who says, you're playing the rhythm wrong. We want it heavier with spare beats because that's the way our community does it. They're very, very specific sometimes in those ways. Wow, it's 20 it's minutes only away like from each other that's wow, it that's yeah. interesting uh, and how about dance like i know that again like balkan region is big so maybe my question it will be something similar uh, across all the co- romani cultures in balkan region or maybe there will be some uh, differences but 
Romani dance is it tend to be more as a solo dance or a group dance? And like for instance in Turkey, Romani dance it's a solo dance, it's social dance, so you can interact with other person, but it's not a line dance and it's not a circle dance. How is is that uh, in Balkan region? Is it the same or like different in different uh, corners? Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it definitely depends on the area and the community. Um, so, uh, again, like in the in the northern regions of the Balkans, it seems like there's a lot of solo dance. Although there's some line dancing, also depends on you know, with, like in central Serbia, Roma dance, uh, the kolo, which is also the thing that like local Serbs dance, a kind of line dance, uh, circular or semicircular with a set step pattern. But there are also solo type dances that are much more similar to the kinds of things that Romanian Roma often do or Hungarian Roma do. Um, and then if you go south into that kind of more Ottoman, you know, influenced or Ottoman looking regions, um, which uh, is where I have more expertise, you also see some solo dance and some definitely a good amount of line dancing. Kosovo, South Serbia, Macedonia, uh, Greece, Bulgaria, Romani communities do lots of line dances too. And so, but the thing, the irony here is that their line dances are different from the line dances of central Serbia or further north in the Balkans. Their solo dances are different from the solo dances of Roma in central Serbia or north, uh, northern Balkan communities yet again. So it comes back to the, that community uh, history, cultural history. And a lot of that has to do with the Ottoman influence. So, you know, southern Balkan Romani communities um, often dance line dances that are pretty similar to the kinds of things that other local ethnic groups do, Macedonians, Serbs, Albanians, depending on the communities that they're in. Um, uh, and, and, and their solo dances often have a lot to do with the very particular kind of Ottoman history of solo dance in the Ottoman Empire, right? So one thing that's really interesting is that South Serbia, South Balkan, excuse me, so, you know, Kosovo, South Serbia, and Macedonia, and South and East, many of the local terms for a particular musical style or repertoire and dance form that often gets associated a lot with Roma uh, are some variation of Čoček, Kuček, Čuček, depending on which local language you're looking at. But the, all those words very clearly come from an Ottoman Turkish term, Kurchek, which uh, referred to a professional entertainment category of, at that time, young men who dressed at least partially in women's attire, at least from the waist down, for centuries in the Ottoman Empire in order to perform solo dance in public in a space that at that time was too risque for a woman professional entertainer of any respectability to do. So they were called kurcheks. They think it comes from the Persian word kuchuk for a young person or a small person yeah, because of their youth. So what we think happened was that in the 1800s, when many other ethnic groups, non-Romani ethnic groups under the Ottoman system, non-Muslim groups like Armenians, Jews, Greeks, people who were very much in the entertainment industries back then, received certain liberties from the Ottoman regime to pursue other kinds of economic 
um, practices that used to be limited more to higher end Muslim communities, they did that. So Jews, Greeks, Armenians, they started to branch out into other branches of, of work. And they left behind the entertainment industry because that was always seen as a somewhat low class kind of work. Everybody liked it. Everyone needed performers, but no one wanted their son or daughter to have to do it, right? To have to kind of be responsible to somebody for pay and the ways that they use their body or their mouth or whatever to produce pleasure. The obvious parallel seeming quite a bit like prostitution, unfortunately, in those times. So what happened is that Roma didn't get those same exceptions, though, right? So they began to much more massively, they had already been in the entertainment industry for sure, but they much more massively filled in that niche when all these other groups were leaving it. Uh, and what seems to be the case is that Romani men in particular were performers on musical instruments, but Romani women stepped into the professional dancing niche. So they became performers in taverns or for family parties, things like that. They would often you know, perform with a family ensemble. So the men of the family played music and the women would play the frame drum and sing and or dance. And they took over the Kerchek or Changi, that was the name of the women's style legacy of solo dance, you know, uh, Chief Teteli type things or the 9-8 Karshilama type styles, right? But using a lot of isolation, skeletally based movements of the pelvic area, right? Uh, Moving their hips up and down in this vertical motion that's very typical of many of those Romani communities. Shoulder shakes, arm movements, wrist movements, head and neck movements, right? Those kinds of things. All of that came together as forms of chochek or tuchek. So these were women who were performing professionally for a time. And then when the Ottoman Empire left many of these regions, the demand for that kind of professional solo dance entertainment sort of faded away as well as culture changed and entertainment industries changed. But it had become such a thing in the Romani community because of its professional um, potential to bring money and things that it had also become deeply embedded as a social practice. So what has happened is that that has carried over into the community dance practices and remained a really important thing. So to this day in a lot of those communities, you know, when young kids are getting underfoot in the house, mom has to cook, dad has things to do, you know, the kids are a bother. Um, uh, the first thing that parents will go to with a boy is to hand him a little drum, a tarabuka drum, like a dumbek, this hour, hourglass-shaped drum that you know is common throughout the Balkan, but also near East Middle Eastern area, and say, "Here, practice, practice playing, right? You know, get it, get him out of my hair." Uh, for a young girl, the opposite is true. They'll they'll take a radio, put on some music and say, come on, dance, let's dance, let's see you move, let's, and then, you know, usually some older adult often offers pointers and things. So kids are really competent dancers, drummers, performers by, you know, five, six, seven years of age where they're out in the community being able to practice this almost with the same skill as adults because it has become so ingrained in the community practices at this point. And for that reason, many other Balkan communities see this as a particularly Romani style of music and dance culture so connected for them it's so interesting that you were describing the female dance uh, like romani dance in certain balkan regions it's so much the movements like remind us ballet dance vocabulary today right right <laughs> like right. all those shoulder right. shimmies hips up and down <laughs> that's right right 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the legacy goes back to that historic cultural history, right? I mean, that sort of uh, presence under the Ottoman spread some of those things across wider geographic areas. So, I mean, of course, there are very important differences, right, in the movement vocabulary and in the aesthetics um, between sort of Balkan Romani practices and um, things that you consider as sort of rocks style, right, in other parts of the Middle East. Um, but it's clear that there are sort of underlying threads, right, or organic kind of connections in terms of body movements, right, that are part of a much larger shared sort of heritage. Um, you know, with that said, it's very interesting. So one of the famous um, recently deceased, unfortunately, um, Balkan Romani singers, one of the first women who, who ever became, you know, um, widely renowned in terms of professional recordings and, you know, uh, performances on national TV, state TV in Yugoslavia. She was a Macedonian Romani woman named Esma Redepova. Many people may know of her. Uh, she was interviewed at one point, and it was very interesting. She was seeing, you know, music videos in the 90s, probably early 2000s, where people were using, they were playing Romani to tech music, but, you know, male instrumentalists to try and get some, I guess, sex appeal to the videos, right, would have women dance, quote unquote, chochek, and do it in things that look much more like, you know, standard belly dance costumes, bare mm. midriff, um, you know, things like that. And using actually movement vocabulary that very much looked much more like Egyptian or other Near Eastern styles of belly dance, right, circular movements of the hip forward and back. Uh, hip shimmies, right, and things like that. Um, and Esma was pretty upset about it, uh, ironically. You know, we could argue about whether she had a point or didn't have a point, but she was saying this is not Romani tradition, right? Those, that movement style, that exposure of the stomach, you know, those things would not fly in our community practices. For her, it was distasteful, right? You know, in Romani community events, the stomach is never bare, women are fully dressed up, and, and the pelvic movement is much more of a vertical movement up and down than it is uh, kind of around in a circular figure eight movement. Uh, and she felt that some of the movements are actually a little bit overdone for Romani aesthetics, where the belief is that subtler is better, right? Um, she has, she used this wonderful phrase that like, you know, we used to, people dance at a wedding and a young woman can raise her hand and just with the way that she turns her wrist and her fingers, you know, she, it feels like it could take somebody's life, you know, takes people's breath away. Something so small of a movement because it's seen as respectful yet beautiful, right? Um, so it shows that there are much deeper aesthetic values that they have that can be very subtle, but which show the differences. And I can see that even between Turkish Roman style and Balkan Romani style, right? Sometimes the Turkish Roman throwing of the stomach for the Roma that I worked with in South Serbia would be seen as almost over-exaggerated, still too much. Um, based on, on what they consider to be their community standards, even if it's much more similar than, let's say, uh, the comparison with Egyptian-style rocks, Sharki, or something like that. Mm, that's so interesting. And uh, seeing those uh, connections and differences in how we approach cultures from different perspectives, because for some uh, like outside, uh, I would say, uh, it may like you may not even notice those like subtle differences or like right. what is going on in dance. Right. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing all those insights. And uh, I'm absolutely sure like all our listeners are now like absolutely thrilled uh, with all this new information and knowledge for many of them. I'm absolutely sure because uh, I think as ballet dancers, we sometimes underestimate uh, the richness of Balkan region and how much it actually has connection with what is our typical center of focus. So this is uh, absolutely like eye-opening and uh, brightening our horizons um, for for dancers. So thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your knowledge. Uh, Before I ask you our final uh, traditional question of the podcast we have, can you please uh, tell our listeners uh, where they can uh, possibly find your work somewhere online or maybe you have any upcoming events uh, that uh, something that they can maybe attend and learn even more on this topic? Sure. Um, I have a few publications that are pretty academic, but I'm happy to have people try to wade through them if they're if they're interested in doing so. Um, uh, the, unfortunately, a lot of academic stuff is in you know academic journals that are also paywalled or uh, things like that. So, uh, but I'm happy actually to have um, to distribute my writings to people for free if if they contact me. Um, via email, otherwise, um, uh, academia.edu, I'm a member there, and sometimes people can get access to the, the articles that I've posted. I have one article that came out in 2015 about, um, you know, global world music and Balkan Romani music. Uh, my dissertation is also available, so that has a much broader uh, historical and cultural context to the Romani music that I studied. Um, uh, but again, I'm happy to share that with people as 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 much as there's interest. The other thing is that I periodically do teach dance classes uh, for folk dance communities across the United States, uh, where I often do Romani and general Balkan folk um, dances, in particular southern Serbia, Macedonia, Kosovo, and Greek. Uh, so people can keep an eye out for um, postings about me teaching. One of the places that I often teach, and which even if I'm not teaching, I would highly recommend as a good uh, resource for people, is the East European Folk Life Center, the EEFC. Um, there, we do have a website, uh, eefc.org. Uh, there are yearly camps that are held every summer where that bring people together for a week uh, with various people teaching uh, Balkan music, singing, and dance classes. Very well-informed uh, researchers and scholars of this stuff with you know uh, community um, connections or people who are from these different ethnic communities coming to teach their own material. So it's a really great resource to find more information. Um, and then uh, I would say that I'm also happy to have people contact me uh, via email and I'm happy to share. YouTube can be a great resource if you know what to look for. So I'm happy to curate, particularly when it comes to Romani music and dance, uh, videos on, that are on YouTube, community wedding videos, other kinds of things where people can see what the dances really look like in their community settings. So you can see the aesthetics, the styling uh, and the way that that all works. Um, without having to kind of wonder, am I am I watching something that's authentic or that's accurate or not uh, not accurate? So um, you know, my my email is a marco the number two at uic.edu, and you know, um, if people contact me, I'm happy to respond with whatever information I can help provide. 
Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much sure. for kindly offering this. Uh, is mm -hmm. it an option also for people to reach you via social media or email is better? Sure, I am on Facebook, so um, uh, people can try to find me that way, although I think that email is probably a little bit easier for me. Sometimes I don't see the new friend requests or message requests, um, particularly because I'm a parent of a young child and I don't get online as often as I used to anymore. So um, either or is possible, but uh, I think that email is usually a quicker turnaround for me these days. Sure. I'll make sure to also include uh, links uh, in the show notes as well as uh, your email so people can easily reach out. Uh, but once sure. again, thank you so much for uh, your time and uh, being open to share the uh, knowledge about uh, this topic and subject. Really appreciate and uh, I would love to sum up with our uh, final question. Typically, it is about ballet dance, but of course, I will rephrase it <laughs> about Balkan <laughs> dance and music. And I would ask you to approach this question from a point of view of you personally, your interest, rather than approaching it from the point of view of work or job today, because you, sure. are, as a scholar, you do like uh, actually research, uh, work mm -hmm. research on this topic. But the question is... What makes you fall in love with Balkan dance and music again and again so you keep doing it, keep researching mm. it for so many years? Mm. Um, I have to say it's the kind of, it's the feeling, the aesthetics that I get from it. That's the funny thing, you know, researching it is all well and good, but it, the original impulse for me always remains the kind of more gritty, visceral, deep in my gut connection that I get when I hear a rhythmic pattern or a musical turn or a style of music or see a dance movement that I just feel like, oh, that's a great combination of steps. So that that, that is a beautiful way to lift your leg and hold out a long pause in a musical um, in the context of that particular melody. So, so many of the Balkan, different Balkan traditions, including Roman many ones that I've really like fallen in love with and keep being impressed by I'm drawn to by that really very bodily and kind of emotional connection that I still feel to that music you know what a beautiful solo on a clarinet does to kind of inspire me to move right or, or the mind's eye image that I have of the way Romani uh, dancers dance a particular tune, right? That, that when I'm teaching it or able to dance it again at a given moment, I sort of feel like I'm, I'm embodying a little bit of this community developed uh, style of just moving their body to music. And it makes me feel very connected. There's a deep seated pleasure that I get out of that actual practice, right? That I feel like is what drives my interest um, in all other realms of my life. And, and it's something that I, I'm sure many of your listeners can also identify with. It's often very hard to put into words, but you know what it feels like, right? And and, and as, as structured as Balkan dance seems for a lot of people, right? I mean, the, the dance has these steps and is done in this way and this handhold and whatever. It never gets old for me, all, all those things considered, you know, especially a wonderful new piece of music or a live performance of the same tune and doing that dance feels new again to me every time I flex my heel a certain way or lift my knee to a certain height or take that bend. Um, it's very enjoyable. And and I will say that a lot of that has to do with line dances, but I've, I do quite a fair share of solo Romani style and Turkish Roman um, solo dance too. And 
I feel the same way about that as well, right? Every new way that I can experience those same good old moves um, feels just as fresh as the first time I ever did it. So it's a beautiful thing. That's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.